Hello everyone and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and my regular co-host Tony Black is still away enjoying the sun, sea and surf of Riser. So this week I'm joined by Zachary Fruling, Trek FM's resident philosopher and Star Trek Voyager expert from To The Journey. And I'm afraid I have a little confession to make. The way we record these episodes normally is that we each make a local recording, which is a high quality recording. And then we have a, an online audio recording of the, of the interview as a backup, um, in case something goes wrong. And in this case, something went wrong at my end, uh, in that I screwed up with my recording. So I'm very sorry. What you're going to have to listen to here, uh, is an interview in which Zachary's audio sounds as crisp and perfect and uh, nuanced and sophisticated as you're used to getting from Trek FM, and my audio sounds a little bit like it's coming from the bottom of a well. But um, I'm very sorry, it was it was entirely my mistake. But hopefully you'll find the conversation interesting enough to bear with the technical difficulties. I know we both uh, enjoyed discussing this topic a lot, and it's one that we both thought was quite an interesting one uh, to bring to you, and something that kind of sat almost in the midpoint between primitive culture and metatrex so that was one reason i thought it would be good to get zachary on so that we could hear some of his thoughts from a philosophical angle so um this is my interview with zachary fruling about allegory this episode of primitive culture is brought to you by audible.com offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone tablet and desktop to get a free audiobook of your choice and help trek fm at the same time visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past... Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well, we haven't run out of history quite yet. Hi, Zachary. How are you? Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me on. Uh... We've had you on our show, Metatrex, a couple of times, and there's some natural overlap between Metatrex and what we do here on Primitive Culture. So I'm glad we finally get a chance to uh, podcast on your show together. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very touched. You described yourselves on a recent episode of Metatrex as being the midwives to my podcasting career on Trek FM. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true that you and Mike sort of really, uh, you know, welcomed me on, on board on Metatrex and allowed me a chance to talk about some of the issues, I mean, you know, my my background really is, is sort of a mixture of history and, and kind of literature, I suppose. And, and maybe in this episode, we're, we're looking at a slightly more literary topic in some ways. Um, but definitely there is a kind of overlap with philosophy. Uh, the, the topic we're talking about today is allegory, basically, allegory in Star Trek, um, and also Star Trek as allegory. Um, and one of the things that made me think of you is, of course, <laughs> one of the few pieces of philosophy that I knew before listening to Metatrex was the allegory of the cave, Plato's cave. And I think you, you talked about that in, in one of your episodes. But that actually, the more that I've been looking into allegory and the history of allegory this week in preparation for this episode, that is one of the earliest allegories, I think, that, that is kind of is well known, that is a part of our collective culture. 
You know, it's pretty funny because when you first mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about allegory, it scared me a little bit because despite the well-known allegory of the cave from the history of philosophy, I really don't know much about allegory in literature at all. <laughs> so I had to go, what, is, what the heck is allegory? So it's got me started thinking, what is allegory as opposed to other types of literature, fables and parables and whatnot? And it, it turns out that allegory is a pretty broad category. It's not, it's, it seems pretty difficult to give a precise definition of what allegory is. And that kind of led to some difficulty in thinking of what exactly Star Trek's function is as it relates to allegory. Um, you know, very broadly, you could think of all of Star Trek as an allegory for certain ideals. More narrowly, you can think of individual stories inside Star Trek as allegories for certain messages, certain um, takeaways, key lessons, you know, lessons in morality, morality plays and whatnot. And then there are the uses of allegory inside Star Trek, you know, examples of allegory or fables or parables being cited or used as part of the story elements inside Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's quite a, a broad subject. I don't, I don't really have a, a sort of working definition of allegory here, except to say that in quite a broad sense, I suppose, I'd say that allegory is is really when one thing represents another. I mean, it's very closely tied to metaphor. It's a kind of, people often call it an extended metaphor. Um, and we see it in Star Trek in various ways. You know, when we say, for example, oh, the Klingons represent the Soviets in the Cold War or something, that's a, you know, a typical kind of allegorical substitution in a sense. Or it always reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you've, you've heard that old joke about the Freudian slip. So, you know, what, what's the definition of a Freudian slip? Well, it's when you mean one thing and say your mother. So that's the kind of, you know... <laughs> you, you know when you make... Similar idea, yeah. the idea. That, yeah, exactly. And know it when you see it. You know, essentially that's what allegory is, I suppose, is when you're meaning one thing but you're saying another. You know, you're representing one thing through another. Um, and one of the episodes that I think we'll come to talk about um, a bit later on in this episode is uh, Darmok, which is probably the most famous example of allegory in Star Trek, because there we have a culture who literally can only communicate uh, about things around them in the world, about people they're meeting, about the, their kind of everyday real life through allegorical narrative, in a sense, through relating it to something else, through a kind of metaphor. That's what Picard calls it metaphor. Uh, Troy calls it imagery. But really, they're kind of talking about allegorical substitution in that way. So as I was circling in trying to figure out the precise definition of allegory, how do you distinguish allegory from run-of-the-mill everyday metaphors? Is it overly strong, do you think, to call an allegory a metaphor with a message? You know, the, it's not just a matter of using a metaphor, it's to represent an idea, or even stronger than that, maybe an ideal or have some sort of a takeaway or a message. I kind of think of allegory as a little closer to a fable or a parable in that way, as opposed to, uh, you know, just literary metaphors for the sake of, you know, illustrating and uh, sort of fleshing out a... Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm saying, idea, but fleshing out a, uh, it's not just a matter of fleshing out imagery, it's a matter of fleshing out an idea. I think that's definitely a good point. I mean, I think allegory is traditionally a kind of intensely moral uh, form in a sense. I mean, the, the kind of high point of allegory and, and really where my interest in allegory kind of stems from originally is medieval writing. You know, the Middle Ages, people were very concerned with allegory. It was a very major part of the literary tradition at that time. In some ways, that's one reason probably that we see it maybe as a little bit old fashioned. And certainly certain kinds of allegories, say personification allegory, where you have, you know, uh, a character called truth arguing with a character called justice or something like that. It, there's a slight cringe factor to us now looking at it. And in some ways, a lot of people feel that with some of the allegories in Star Trek as well. If the allegory is too obvious, if it's too on the nose, then it kind of People find it difficult to accept, partly because our understanding of literature and culture and fiction is very much um, 
influenced by the novel, which is a much more realist form, and by, you know, television and cinema and so on, which again try to kind of replicate reality in a way that to medieval writers who were using allegory, or even, you know, going back to Aesop and fable and these kind of animal fables and these kind of things, it's not really about the literal real world and, and sort of realism in that sense. It, it is about a kind of way of exemplifying virtues or condemning vices. You don't really get a kind of guilty pleasure uh, allegory, I think. There's always, <laughs> there's always something more serious going on there. And, and in some ways, that's one reason it's quite applicable to Star Trek, because uh, you, you know, on the Mission Log podcast, for example, they, at the end of every episode, they always ask, what are the morals, meanings and messages of this show? And their whole kind of conceit of their podcast is that that's what Star Trek is, essentially. You know, it, it is on one level a kind of morality play. It is, it does have a serious intent. You can, um, you know, watch an episode and it's, you know, for the most part, occasionally there are episodes where they basically say, well, there aren't any. But broadly speaking, you can derive some kind of meaning and some kind of moral, uh, code from it and and that's a big part of it and that's one of the reasons i think that it does fit allegory very well i think it's interesting and useful to develop this taxonomy of different kinds of allegories because you can find examples of all of these inside star trek like you were describing a moment ago all of Star Trek can be conceived of as an allegory. Star Trek certainly has its moral takeaways, a vision for what humankind not just could be, but should be even. I mean, it's, Star Trek, I think, makes a pretty strong allegorical claim that way. On the other hand, you can distinguish that kind of ideal-based allegory from personification allegories. I'm thinking back of the original series, you know, the way in which Kirk, Spock, and McCoy represented three different facets of human nature, you know, our sort of internal mental dialogue. That is very much like having characters in, in ancient allegories representing truth and justice. Here we have, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy representing, you know, sort of command decision and com- representing logic and representing, you know, human compassion and emotion. Um, all acted out in dramatic form, but this is the kind of internal monologue that we have. And that's why we find those characters so interesting. It's not just because there's interesting dialogue and interesting drama. It's because that's representative of our internal mental structure and struggles. And it's a form of conflict as well. I mean, there's always been this big debate with Star Trek, you know, should there be, or what does it mean to have no conflict in the future? You know, Gene Roddenberry kind of developed this idea of conflict-free society almost, which created a lot of problems. But of course, with Kirk, Spock and McCoy, there is perpetual conflict, but it's it's good natured to a certain extent as as kind of teasing and ribbing and so on. But you do very much have two, you know, in Spock and McCoy, you have these two characters who are they are very much like, like as you say, you know, logic and passion. They could be with capital letters, uh, debating with each other. And a lot of, you know, medieval personification allegory. That's exactly what they do. Um, you know, you get a debate back and forth between uh, characters representing these different aspects of human nature, and they'll argue with each other. And and it won't necessarily be. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is people tend to think of allegory as simplistic, and and there are certainly allegories that are are teaching sort of one message like that. But actually, sometimes, you know, each side will make valid arguments and it can be used as a way of of showing a debate um, between opposing sides, between opposing viewpoints and kind of, you know, in some ways, although I say it's not a realistic form, there, there is a kind of realism to that. And, and say with characters like Kirk, Spock and McCoy, I suppose, they they transcend that. So they have that as a very core aspect of their characterization, but that's not all they are. And I suppose that's one of the things that people often feel is that traditional allegory is somewhat flat because it, it doesn't represent real human beings, doesn't represent real character. And that maybe, you know, you, you need more than that for us these days to to kind of engage with people and to kind of identify with the story. 
Well, as we've been framing this, it occurs to me that Star Trek The Next Generation could be thought of as an allegory for a more evolved form of what Star Trek The Original Series was going for, right? If Star Trek The Original Series represented human conflict, you know, whether internal human conflict or whether external political conflict, the kind of more evolved a uh, calmer, gentler boardroom kind of thinking that you see in Star Trek The Next Generation could be conceived of as an allegory for, uh, you know, sort of future evolution of human struggles, right? You know, a, a more evolved way of working out conflict. So this leads to some of the dramatic struggles that you see in Star Trek The Next Generation, right? This It's struggle to portray conflict in a realistic way when you have more idealized humans. But given that, you can think of, of Star Trek The Next Generation as an allegory for an ideal or an idea of a more evolved uh, way that humans can interact with each other. And it's very interesting, I think, to frame it like that, because um, one of the things that I thought we might come on to talk about is the kind of religious roots of allegory, and particularly in the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I suppose on a very basic level, you know, you have the Old Testament, uh, an eye for an eye kind of justice. You have this quite, um, the presentation of God in the Old Testament is, is, is quite scary in a way. It's quite a kind of harsh world somehow by the time you get to the new testament it's all about humility and kindness and not judging people and actually weirdly those two mindsets correspond quite well with the relationship between the original series and the next generation it's the kind of you you know taking some of the core elements of the one and translating them into the other and i mean darmok i mentioned earlier of course is also in itself you could say is an allegory of another star trek episode arena because it basically repurposes the kind of the basic structure of that episode and the kind of the idea of these two captains being taken down to this planet and there's this expectation that they're going to fight as Kirk fights the Gornian arena but then this being next generation it kind of flips that on its head and actually the story is going in a different uh, direction that's much more about diplomacy and getting on and communication Um, so it's kind of taking that original story and then twisting it and changing the meaning of it to some extent. I think the comparison with the Old Testament versus the New Testament in Christian theology is is a really interesting one because I think it's a genuine question whether the New Testament in Christian theology represents a culmination of the ideas that were begun in the Old Testament or whether there are two genuinely different set of moral ideals going on. Are they complementary? Are they different? Is one an evolution of the other? I don't think it's clear at all based on what you get in the text. And likewise, in Star Trek versus Star Trek The Next Generation, I think there's a genuine you know, question about this, right? Is, is Star Trek The Next Generation the logical culmination of, this, of the seeds of ideas that were planted in the original series? Or is there a, genu- a substantively different set of ideals that are displayed in Star Trek The Next Generation? And funnily enough, one of the key uh, reasons that allegory became so widespread in the Middle Ages was to do with what was known as biblical typology. And typology is a form of allegory which specifically is concerned with the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I didn't really realize this, but when I looked into it a bit, um, the reason that typology came about is widely thought to be because of a desire to resolve inconsistencies between the Old Testament and the New Testament is basically a kind of canon fix. And of course, we get this in uh, Star Trek, you, you know, with, I mean, we're getting at the moment with discovery about this whole Ferrari about the Klingons. But if you think about going back, you know, the relationship between the Klingons in the original series and then the Klingons from the motion picture onwards, and the fact that they put that line into Deep Space Nine, joking about it, and then in Enterprise, they had a whole storyline trying to resolve this inconsistency. It kind of shows you, again, there's that kind of desire to somehow blur the 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 continuity gap 
between those two things. And that's where this idea of typology came out, which was basically reinterpreting the whole of the Old Testament as essentially in a less literal sense, not saying that these were necessarily things that actually happened, but saying these were allegorical prefigurations of the life of Christ. So, for example, you have with the um, Abraham and Isaac, the, the Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son, that that is a prefiguration of God sacrificing his own son in the person of Jesus on the cross. Um, and so every incident, in a sense, that happens in the Old Testament has its kind of echo and its parallel in the New Testament. And they kind of feed back and forth into each other in some ways. And and you see this in the poetry of the period as well. I mean, for example, in um, the poem Piers Plowman, there's a, a, a description of the crucifixion and the relationship between the crucifixion and the Garden of Eden. And there's a line, I, I wish I could quote it in the original, but it basically says, because what was lost by wood shall be redeemed by wood, essentially. And the idea is that the wood of the cross is in some sense the same thing as the wood of the tree in the Garden of Eden. Everything is kind of tied together. Everything repeats in a different form. And that there's this kind of unity to that story that somehow transcends the apparent differences between those two books. Sometimes I get the sense that the attempt to resolve the internal conflicts in religious texts, the one we're talking about in particular, you know, various conflicts between the New and the Old Testament, or uh, whether it's ideas that don't add up or factual statements that don't add up, that uh, attempt to, to resolve those conflicts tends to reinforce kind of a literal interpretation of what is there, because that's the whole, the, the literal interpreta- interpretation of what generates the conflict in the first first place, right? <laughs> you have seemingly conflicting literal interpretations, and so the attempt to resolve those conflicts forces people into a literal reading of what is, is being represented by the by the words on the page. Asking that question about Star Trek, do you think that the emphasis on canon, you know, whether it's resolving the, the conflicts with what we see about the Klingons, the backstories and whatnot, do you think that tends to de-emphasize the metaphorical and allegorical um, interpretation of what we see in Star Trek, the, the takeaways, the, the key messages of what we see? Is it, is it sort of missing the forest for the trees, so to speak? I suppose I do to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not massively fussed about those kind of issues of canon i i sort of see that storyline in enterprise as a bit ridiculous um i mean i didn't mind it as a story but i just feel the idea that you have to kind of account for that seems silly to me i preferred the way that deep space nine dealt with it kind of basically acknowledging it in a kind of jokey in jokey way because the fact is everyone watching knows what's going on you know we know why i mean again with discovery we we know why it is that the discovery looks more technologically advanced than kirk's enterprise you know it's because it's made 50 years later we're not stupid we kind of we, we do exist <laughs> you know it's that kind of william shatner's get a life isn't it it's the kind of you know this sort of not i was gonna say refusal to live in the real world it's not that i mean i, I do appreciate the virtues of canon i don't like it when it's disregarded willy-nilly but i think that to be so determined to resolve all of those incongruities, you can get slightly sidetracked. I mean, and that's not to say there's anything, I don't think it necessarily ruins the messages or anything, but in the same way as, you know, some people like Star Trek for the space battles or whatever, uh, and I don't have anything against the space battles, I, you know, I enjoy them as much as the next person, but I think they're not really the heart of what it is, and they're not, you know, they, they don't take away from the moral story necessarily, but they're not, they're not that. 
You know, I don't claim to have my finger on the pulse of what, you know, the every man or lay person thinks about religious text or about how to interpret Star Trek, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do have the sense that generally we're losing, culturally losing our ability to speak metaphorically, that things have become so literal and factual and technological that this literature mindedness, thinking in terms of metaphors and stories and allegories and, and messages that are not literally written out explicitly on the page or, or, uh, described somewhat literally in the dialogue on the screen that we're losing our ability to pick up on those messages. And Star Trek was trying to solve that problem. Right? Star Trek injected allegory into the dialogue about things like race relations and inter- international politics. And But I feel like over the last 50 years, maybe we've become less attuned to those metaphors rather than better attuned to them. I suppose it also depends how you like your kind of messages to be delivered. I mean, there is something about allegory that is when it's very one-to-one when it's very on the nose it can seem a little simplistic and I think it doesn't bother me as much as maybe it bothers other people but then you know I like medieval literature and most people don't so (laughs) you you know I'm probably I'm primed to be more sympathetic Star Trek can be a bit ham-fisted when it comes to its messages. I'm thinking of Let That yeah. Be Your Last Battlefield. You know, painting characters yeah. half white and half black was very on the nose. <laughs> I mean, you, you'd have to be pretty dense to miss the message, I think. It is. Yes, absolutely. And it gets, I suppose that's the point. You'd have to be dense to miss the message. And that's what some people don't like about allegories. They feel it maybe insults the intelligence of the viewer or the reader, that it kind of, that it prescribes the meaning for you. I mean, there's quite an interesting quotation from Tolkien, actually. Uh, Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis are quite an interesting point of comparison for two authors. They were friends, um, and they both, of course, wrote these kind of fantasy stories. Famously, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which are an allegory of uh, Christian religion, in a sense. You know, you have Aslan representing Jesus and so on. They are, in effect, almost a typology of of the Bible themselves. Um, And he was quite interested in allegory. Tolkien was always... Um, being described as writing The Lord of the Rings and his other books in an allegorical way. And he didn't like it because he actually was quite opposed to allegory. He said, there's quite a great quote, he said, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done since I grew old enough and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. I keep going back to the allegory that I know best that we started uh, the show by talking about the Plato's mm-hmm. allegory of the cave. And of course, you know, Socrates was executed, so he must have been a little on the nose <laughs> during the time period. But as I read, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave now, it's a metaphor for education. It's a metaphor for knowledge. It's a metaphor for politics. It's a metaphor for Socrates' own life. It's rich with metaphor for many different things. And you really have to dig to find those layers of meaning. I don't think they're obvious at all. So the canonical metaphor to me, Plato's allegory of the cave, I don't think of as being terribly on the nose compared to say, let that be your last battlefield. Mm. And the other interesting thing about the allegory of the cave is on one level, it's an allegory about allegory because it's kind of exactly representing that idea of you see one thing by another, you see the shadow rather than the original. And that idea that you're watching, you know, you're looking at what's presented, what's directly in front of you is one thing, but you're kind of having to use your imagination to kind of work beyond that somehow. You see it even, um, say, in the plays of Shakespeare, I think you, you get a sense of that, that, you know, there's something represented on stage and it cannot, I mean, he talks about this in the prologue to Henry V, the fact that it, it can't be photorealistic, it can't be like cinema. So you're seeing, you know, one man in a 
in a, an outfit on stage or, or in a Roman place, you're seeing a few togas or whatever, and you're forced to kind of, Sometimes I think when it works, you feel like you're seeing something behind the performance that you're witnessing. Does that make sense? This is a really interesting question. In this sense, does allegory is allegory more like the shadow on the wall of Plato's cave? Does it obscure the truth because it can't be photorealistic in the way that you describe? Or does it reveal those platonic essential truths in some more pure way? So, you know, which end of, the, of Plato's cave, the shadows mm-hmm. on the wall or the, the sunlight outside the cave is, is representative of, of allegory? Well, what I would say is it is a simplification necessarily. It's not realistic. It's not complex necessarily. And in Tolkien's terms, I mean, I was thinking when he describes, you know, history feigned or imagined, it sort of makes me think more of the world of Deep Space Nine, which is very complex and rich and and uh, has a very different approach. And in some ways, I think Deep Space Nine is probably the least allegorical of the Star Trek series. And so I think there is an element that, you know, something like, Deep Space Nine storytelling is very complex and, and sort of sophisticated in a sense. And, and some of these other allegories, you know, you mentioned Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, are simplistic. It is necessarily simplistic. On the other hand, it makes a strong point. And I think that, you know, Star Trek was being made in, in an era when some of these things were more controversial than they are now. I mean, famously, it was invented because Gene Roddenberry's previous show, The Lieutenant, had been cancelled because they tried to deal with the issue of race relations and they, they basically had the plug pulled on them. The network, I think, even refused to screen the show. It was so sort of incendiary. Um, so in Star Trek, he kind of found a way to tackle these issues obliquely, but at the same time, you're right, by our standards, very much on the nose. And it's true, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is very kind of on the nose. It's It's not subtle in any way. On the other hand, I think sometimes that has an effect. I think that can crystallize something for you watching something or reading something in a way that by stripping away all of the kind of cultural baggage, all of the kind of complexity of the real world, you can see something in a in a new way. I mean, I was watching recently as well, the um, just to bring us you know, right to the other end of Star Trek, from Enterprise, the episode Stigma, which is an allegory for uh, HIV, an allegory for particularly, I suppose, gay people with HIV in the, you know, what, 80s, early 90s and that kind of era. Um, and I think, again, it's kind of like, on one level, it's, it's very on the nose. I think a lot of people would feel that episode is a bit clunky because it's sort of, it's so on the nose and it's so obvious. Uh, and also, I would say it's like at least 10 years too late for, Star Trek to be doing anything kind of socially progressive, which it obviously thinks it's doing by by making that episode. On the other hand, it does really, you engage very much with T'Pol's situation and you engage, um, you know, with what it's like to be in, in that situation and how she feels and the kind of predicament that she's put in. And I think it gives you a kind of empathy that, you know, some people might not have if they were presented with the original situation. I think similarly with kind of race relations in the original series, you know, that may well be the case that that kind of simplification, that crystallization makes it easier to understand. I mean, talking of let that be your last battlefield and the kind of lack of subtlety. Um, years ago, I remember reading about Patrick Stewart was famously in this production of Othello in New York, I think. And the the kind of gimmick of the production basically was that he was playing Othello and everyone else in the cast was black. Um, and I don't know, I think that, that presents a whole raft of interesting sort of political questions because, you know, some people might say, well, they're, they're taking the only decent black role that Shakespeare wrote and giving it to, uh, you know, a white actor. On the other hand, I mean, I didn't see this show, but even just thinking about it, to me, it strikes me that as a white person, seeing that on stage, I would, 
I would gain a kind of instinctive understanding of what it's like to be the only one of your kind surrounded by people whose skin looks different from you. Do you know what I mean? To be really to be forced into the position of a minority that if you're if you're not in a minority, you you don't experience that and you don't you don't see it the same way. So it's a kind of on one level it's a cheap trick, it is kind of a gimmick. On another, it kind of immediately um bashes through all your own kind of expectations or your own kind of cultural baggage and so on and makes the point and makes the kind of emotional as well as an intellectual point that can kind of open your eyes in some way. Well, I feel like there's a tension in the purpose of allegory and metaphor as it relates to social messages. On the one hand, I feel like the more subtle the message is, in a way, the more artistic the end result is going to be, right? You know, we're not just, you know, if you just want to have a message, you might as well just get on a soapbox and say your message, right? You know, there's a reason we put it in dramatic forms and artistic forms, because there's an artistic aesthetic component to that. And I, th- I feel like the more subtle that you can be, in a way, the more brilliant you're, you're being aesthetically. On the other hand, if your purpose is to actually change people's minds, then you can be too subtle. So there's a tension between being clear and blatant enough where people will get the message and you can shock them into questioning their own assumptions and getting people to see the absurdity of their own positions, but still being artistic enough to count as genuine drama or genuine art. It reminds me a bit of that scene in The Measure of a Man where, you know, fairly late on in the episode, Picard has that conversation with Guinan and, and she, she gives him this kind of insight talking about disposable people and what's going to happen down the line. And he says, you're talking about slavery. And he's basically sort of decoding the allegory of the episode on one level. Um, and I think maybe that works because it's, it's not explicit before that point. It's not obvious before that point. It's not so on the nose. So the, and the episode, in a sense, solves its own riddle in that it has that scene and, and, and that piece of dialogue is very on the nose. But at the same time, it withholds it to a certain point. So, and I think often that's quite satisfying when you realize, you don't realize initially that what you're being presented with is familiar in some way or is connected to something real. And then at a certain point, you make the connection and maybe that, that, that at least places some of the kind of interpretive role back with the viewer or back with the reader to, to kind of make that leap. And I feel like the reason that works in that episode is because we get we get to see Captain Picard's own revelation about the allegory, right? We're going mm. with him along for the ride. It's not like the the metaphor of the allegory is being revealed to you up front. It's not it's not so on the nose because Captain Picard has to make that realization and we get to go along with him for the realization. I think that even though at the end it is a little heavy handed, they say, This is just like slavery. That's pretty heavy handed, right? Mm. Um, on the other hand, we, we again we just get to go along with Captain Picard for the ride and that um, that draws you in because you have to you have to make that like all allegories you have to make the the light bulb has to go on you have to understand the revelation that this is a metaphor for something and how does it apply to me to us to our world and that's not always obvious if it's too obvious it's just it's too easy to dismiss i think right if, because i i feel like this is a failing of human nature in a way we start we have our sort of core assumptions about the way the world works and the way our, the world should be and culturally we have our our assumptions our world has assumptions individuals have their assumptions and when you encounter something that doesn't match your assumptions, I think our innate reaction is to reject it. <laughs> that doesn't fit with my worldview. So I'm going to reject that outright. So you have to kind of get through all of that and, and get people to entertain a new idea, a new way of looking at something, getting them to question their fundamental assumptions. But you can't just say your fundamental assumptions are wrong because those fundamental assumptions are the uh, standard by which we measure new information. Mm-hmm. But also I think it doesn't really... 
if the if if the story works, if the storytelling is working, then maybe it doesn't really matter if you do miss the allegory. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, you know, when I was a child, I read the Chronicles of Narnia. I I grew up in a an atheist household. I wasn't familiar really with the Bible. I thought on a very very basic level. I didn't realize as a child that I was reading a, a religious allegory. I enjoyed it because I enjoyed the, you know, the lions and the animals and all that sort of thing. And I suppose with Star Trek, there's, there's that element as well that you can, you, you know, you can come to something like that. I mean, our, our very first episode um, of Primitive Culture, we talked about Oppenheimer. Um, and we talked, one of the episodes we talked about was Jatrell in Voyager. Now, if you know the story of Oppenheimer, then you watch that episode to trail and you pick up on lots and lots of small details, you know, even quotes from interviews that he gave. Um, when we were talking about it, Tony was, was saying basically, uh, you know, it's a very direct, very kind of one-to-one translation allegory. On the other hand, I think if you don't know anything about Oppenheimer, that story would still work because it's a dramatic story. It's written in an interesting way. It's well acted. It's well produced. You, you know, it works as a story with a, with its own moral and with its own kind of ethical worldview that doesn't require a knowledge of the historical person to understand it. But maybe if you do have that knowledge, it also has an extra level of, of kind of satisfaction. It's interesting to think about the sort of causal chain of events of how people's minds get changed, I think, because on the one hand, you can deal directly with the issues that are relevant, right? In Star Trek, you had race relations and international relations in the 60s, and Star Trek was very on the nose. So you can try to change people's minds about those issues directly. A less direct path would be to inject some new idea about a universal general principle, some moral ideal, some some new idea about a general moral principle or political principle. And that gets internalized. It doesn't have to be about anything in particular so that if people have internalized the message in some universal sense, based on the dramatic, you know, reenactment of that, of that ideal that they've seen in the, in the allegory, then when they encounter a realistic situation, they can look inward and apply what they've, what they've learned in some general sense to this particular instance. Um, I'm not sure which way it really works. It probably works differently for different people, but I can imagine you know, a direct and an indirect path to changing people's minds about particular issues. Yes, definitely. I think that's true. And, and you know, you certainly Star Trek has a, a moral code, you know, in the sense that allegory, I mean, you know, talking about medieval allegory, um, whether it's kind of religious allegory, which has obviously a very sort of Christian code or, or even like, um, you know, you see a lot with of allegorical stories, sort of Arthurian legends, you, you, you know, what, what we would think of as, as sort of close to fantasy in a sense, you know, fighting dragons and all this sort of thing. But again, there's this very strong, I mean, it is essentially a, a Christian uh, moral code, but they're very strong. You think of the Knights of the Round Table, they have, you know, a great sense of duty, a great sense of uh, loyalty and certain things they will or won't do. You know, some of them have taken a vow of chastity. Some of them have taken a vow of this or that. If they give their word to someone, they cannot break it no matter what. And in some ways, I suppose with Starfleet characters, you see something similar. They have these kind of, you know, they have the prime directive. That's a very, you know, that could almost be a rule of the Arthurian court. You, you know, I mean, not that rule in particular, but it's a similar kind of an oath that they've taken not to break this kind of sacred vow um and you see you know and they're generally very upstanding they try not to do any harm they they don't kind of rape and pillage they don't make the most of having their having more power and strength they try to use their power to do good and so on so there is very much in star trek a kind of essentially moral world view that is 
appertaining culturally in that world in the same way as, you know, say in the Arthurian court, you have this kind of moral world. You sound like you're agreeing with Dr. McCoy that this is medievalism. <laughs> Nothing wrong with well, medievalism. Oh, well, as you were talking. <laughs> Good medievalism, you know. <laughs> yeah, as you were talking, it, you can kind of, it feels like you can kind of give a taxonomy of different kinds of allegories based on the message that's being conveyed. So mm-hmm. one type of message would be a character-based message, like a virtue ethics-based message, where the message is to, is to internalize certain character traits, loyalty, honor, duty, pick your favorite. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, another type of allegory might be to convey some sort of universal moral rule, you know, like um, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's more like a moral principle, a moral rule. It's not a character trait per se. It's a rule of thumb by which you can evaluate certain, certain instances. And then there's allegories about very particular issues, right? More allegories about slavery, allegories about international relations, allegories about gender relations. And so we have at least three different kinds of allegories, three different types of messages that you could take away from allegories. There's probably more if we took the time to think about it, but there, I would say there's at least those three. The other thing is, I mean, just thinking back to when you were saying in the original series, you know, Kirk, Spock and McCoy as, as kind of allegorical types in a way. I mean, when you talk about virtue ethics, and I know on Metatrex, you've had a whole series about, you know, Klingon virtue ethics, Cardassian virtue ethics and so on. I mean, one of the things we see with the presentation of alien races in Star Trek is very similar to allegorical personification. I mean, you could say a Vulcan is uh, the personification of logic. A Klingon is the personification of honor. Insofar as a kind of idealized version of a Vulcan or a Klingon or whatever. On the other hand, though, I really have come to believe that the alien races in Star Trek are more like us than the humans we see in Star Trek. All the feelings (laughs) we see in the alien races are reflective of of human failings here in the real world. And so, you know, I I really feel like, you know, if we want to look for who we are now, we don't look at Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and we don't look at Captain Picard. We look at all the moral failings of (laughs) of the alien races, and that's a reflection of who we are today. But I look Mm -hmm. to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and and to the crew of the next generation, and later in Star Trek, I do have some thoughts about about what's different in in the later incarnations of Star Trek, but uh, I look to those as a reflection of our ideals versus who we are today. But uh, a few minutes ago, you had mentioned um, Deep Space Nine being kind of different in tone than the next generation, maybe less allegorical. I think you could think of those as an anti-allegory, right? If you you think of the original series as being on the nose and you think of the next generation as being a little simplistically idealistic, then you can think of Deep Space Nine as an allegory for the complexity (laughs) of the things that the next generation was trying to oversimplify. So it's not so much that it's less allegorical. It is trying to ground the allegory in something that we can relate to, something that's, that's a bit more reflective of what we do see in the real world with all of its shades of gray and its tapestry of complexity rather than this sort of platonic ideal you see in the next generation. Absolutely. And it's, it's not that you can't extract moral lessons from those stories or that you can't learn anything of, of kind of moral value from them. Well, the- you know, certainly you can, but it's, it's maybe it, it's, it's, it's less simplistic in a sense. On the other hand, one thing that strikes me is that with Deep Space Nine, there is, if you look at the representation of history in Deep Space Nine, there is a kind of sense of circularity that is kind of ties in with this idea of typology and things repeating themselves and kind of motifs and ideas repeating themselves. I and mean, if you look at, you know, we start with the Cardassian occupation of Bajor and the Bajoran resistance. Then in the sixth season, we get the, the occupation of the station and the resistance there. Then at the end, we get the Cardassian resistance. We get this idea that the same kind of structural um, 
forms keep repeating somehow. It reminds me a bit of um, Battlestar Galactica, you know, the new Battlestar Galactica, and they, they kept saying, you know, everything that's happened Everything that happens now happens again or has happened again. All of this has happened over and over again, basically, that, that kind of almost on the level of plot, kind of history and that, and that narrative is, is repeating itself eternally, which, which isn't a million miles away from the idea that, you know, an event in the Old Testament repeats in the New Testament or that, that something or, or in Deep Space Nine, I suppose, on another allegorical level that, you know, Benny Russell is living one life and Benjamin Sisko is living another. And there's this kind of weird connection between the two things so when benny russell does one thing it affects what cisco can do in you know the real world this this is the reason that captain picard tells wesley wesley ensign you should read more history (laughs) because the same old debates that you know come up again and again there will always be a tension between this democratic impulse and the totalitarian impulse right and the, the same kind of tensions come up in new forms. And I think that's what's interesting about history. It's not that history literally repeats itself because the context is different and the motivations can be different. But I do feel like the same old tensions are always present, you know, in any, any period in history. And it is somewhat cyclical, but I think the what's interesting is the, the combination of, of the the repetition of these contrasting ideals or contrasting impulses with new contexts as a result of the the complexity of the real world. And if you're ignorant of all of that, then you don't see that the past can be a metaphor for what's happening today, an allegory. You don't see that the um, fictional tales that you see in Star Trek or otherwise can be allegories for what's happening today. And you can forget that what we're doing today lays a groundwork for everything to come in the future. I feel like we live such isolated lives in the sense of we we are are so temporally limited we don't we don't we haven't lived in the past we don't know what's going to be happening hundreds or thousands of years in the future we get so focused on the immediate that we forget the 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 sort of long-term progression of the past into the future and our and the role that we play you know we kind of have a responsibility to look into the past and and discern as many uh, takeaways and lessons from the past as possible. We have a responsibility, I think, as Star Trek fans and, and as fans of science fiction or fans of literature in general to take away as many universal principles as possible. And we have a responsibility to the people in the future to learn those lessons and propagate them. <laughs> and what does that mean? It sounds all really abstract, but I feel like if, you, if you're ignorant of history and you're ignorant of, of allegories and the stories you encounter, and you're ignorant of the role that you play in relation to the future, then we're really doing the future a disservice. Certainly, we see that in various ways in Star Trek to do with, um, you know, cultures that have forgotten their history or where something hasn't been learned from the past. I mean, maybe now is the time to, to sort of segue slightly away from looking at Star Trek as an allegory itself and look at some of the examples that we see of allegorical thinking or allegorical narrative within Star Trek. And one of the episodes that I thought we could talk about is the Voyager episode, Dragon's Teeth. And one of the reasons that this interests me is that it's, it rests in part on a misunderstanding of folklore, in a sense, because they meet this species, they're called the Vardwar. The only information they have about them to begin with is Neelix saying that in Old Talaxian, the word Vardwar means foolish. And the, the Old Talaxian, just to put it in context, is, um, I mean, th- these, these people, they've been in uh, cryostasis for 900 years. So it's, you know, at least 900, a thousand odd years old. So this is when we talk about language having changed and, and losing the, the meaning of a word like that, you know, 
this is older than Chaucer. This is like the language of Beowulf. You know, it, it is it, it, English from that era is barely intelligible to us. So, you know, over that period of time, there's quite a significant change. And so he thinks that the word means foolish. So the assumption is that these people were foolish. And then gradually, the more he looks into it, the more he looks into the folklore, into the, uh, the fables and the kind of cultural narrative, the more he begins to realize that the word foolish doesn't apply to them. It applies to anyone who trusts them. And there's this idea, he, he brings up this list of amazing names of these stories that feature, that are related to the world, where the demon with the golden voice, the untrustworthy <laughs> stranger. I mean, like, you talk about the moral being on the nose, the titles of these stories make the, it The laughing broken and obvious. the dark? Oh, that will, yeah, that exactly, wasn't you know. <laughs> But, you know, it's very clear why, what the kind of moral is that we're meant to take from it. And, it's, and it puts Janeway in an interesting position because she, on the one hand, she can't judge these people purely on the basis of folk, of 900-year-old folklore. On the other hand, she keeps saying, you know, we, we can't ignore history. We can't ignore the past. We can't be naive to that. So it sort of puts her in this interesting position of how to, how to interpret those stories kind of allegorically, how to interpret the fable. I think at the beginning of that episode, Neelix and by extension, Captain Janeway are at risk of committing a fallacy called the original fallacy, which is evaluating something based on its origin versus its qualitative moral evaluation here and now today. On the other hand, what what that investigation that Neelix does reveals, it, it basically reveals that the history that's been conveyed just plain wasn't accurate. <laughs> you know, that, that the, the story that the Vaudois were telling is not a true reflection of of what their culture was really like and how they got to be in the place they are now. So I, I think if you rely too much on the history of language, you run the risk of reading the past too much into the present and, and making uh, bad moral ev- evaluations based on, based on that. Uh, there's, there's a reason that, that that fallacy has a name, the original fallacy. It's similar to like, the naturalistic fallacy where you argue that because something is a natural occurrence that it has, that it's morally virtuous. There's lots of things that are natural processes that are still evil and still bad and still not morally desirable, but are still very much a part of the natural world. You know, that that's again, reading the origin of something into the present and making an evaluation based on the origin versus its qualitative moral, moral sense. But really what's going on here, I think is that the, we have some complexity in the Vaudois history. We have the Vaudois as they see themselves. We have the as they were seen by other people. We have the Vaudoir here and now as they're seen by Captain Janeway. So which, who's the real Vaudoir? <laughs> and of course, that episode hand waves a little bit. They kind of say, well, you know, both history, both versions of the history are true and, and they don't really, really follow it up much from there. But um, And there you know, is I, a good Vaudoir who, who, you know, sort of switches sides in a sense and proves, you, you know, to a limited extent, a kind of complexity to that culture. Do you know what I mean? That they're not all how they've been represented to be. They're not, they're not, you know, a bit like, you know, not all Cardassians are evil, not all, you know, whoever they're, um, you know, that within any society, there will be a degree of complexity that goes beyond the kind of the simple level of the allegorical or of the fable or of the, you know, the folklore. I mean, so, so what distinguishes this kind of allegorical reading of the Vaudois history from say stereotypical non-desirable stereotypical depictions of races or cultures in general, because that's essentially what Neelix is doing. He's reading tales, fables from, from their history having to do with the term Vaudois and he's projecting those onto the Vaudois in general (laughs) and making some qualitative judgments about them. That sounds an awful lot like negative stereotyping to me. So what distinguishes that kind of, uh, you know, positive investigation from negative uh, prejudices, for lack of a better word. 
It's true. I mean, that's an interesting point. And yes, and in, you know, in, in real world human cultures, you know, it might have been the figure of the Jew or something that would have that. Do you know what I mean? That would have all these negative stories that would have kind of uh, have seeped into the culture in that way. Um, and yeah, it might be completely unfair, might be completely, you know, used to demonize a particular um, group of people. It's true. I mean, on the other hand, I feel like the episode kind of, because of the way it works out, with some caveats, it does basically conform to the the story. I mean, the, the kind of lesson of the episode seems to be to believe the fable because these people will screw you over. They're not trustworthy, <laughs> you, you know, and it, it's kind of, I mean, but what I think is interesting, though, is that it at least represents the idea that you can, I suppose that you can, there's two ways of looking at this, that, you, that either that you can misread the moral of the story, which is kind of what Neelix does because he takes the word Vardwar and he mis misunderstands its meaning because of the way the language has changed or that there can be two alternative versions of the same story that each have some validity and it's interesting it makes me think a little bit of um the episode in deep space nine where garrick and bashir are talking about the boy who cried wolf and you know we all know what the moral of the boy who cried wolf is but according to garrick who hears that story as an outsider the moral is something quite different he says the moral is never tell the same lie twice now <laughs> on one level, that is a misread. That is a kind of either willful or, or you know, playful or whatever misunderstanding of that story to to say that that's the moral. On the other hand, from a Cardassian point of view, from Garrick's perspective, that is a you, you know, that is part of Garrick's kind of moral well, code tr- in the sense is, of his kind of worldview. Truth uh, for the Cardassians kind of, is malleable, sense. right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and truth to the Cardassians is pretty malleable anyway. So I suppose the question is, do you see that as an alternative, valid interpretation of that story, which? you know, maybe just about it is, or or do you just reject that as a mistake in the same way as thinking that Vardois means foolish and that therefore the Vardois are foolish is a kind of linguistic historical error, a misinterpretation of that story? Well, I'm not a cultural anthropologist, so I can't speak to this too intelligently, I think, but I, it seems like there's a, a, a tension between using allegory and using things like these, these fables that we, we've been talking about to draw attention to genuine cultural differences, because there are some, right? We'd be ignorant to say that there aren't genuine culture, cultural differences out there. American culture is different from Japanese culture, right? For example, in general, in very broad brushstrokes. But then when you sort of zoom in and you look at individual people, it's a lot more complex. Individual people are a lot more similar than their culture might lead you to think. So what is the, is the right way to approach the way in which fables like the ones that Neelix is investigating um, and the way they reveal cultural trends, cultural differences. We don't want to, I don't think we want to erase those, right? That's part of cultural anthropology is to learn things about culture and not just about individuals. But how, how much does culture obscure the complexity and the, um, you know, moral praiseworthy or blameworthiness of individuals versus, um, you know, know, versus stereotyping? Yeah. And arguably that's one of the you know, one of the things that people might identify as a flaw in Star Trek's kind of approach to, particularly to alien races, is the idea of a kind of monoculture, you know, um, that it kind of flattens reality to a sense that it doesn't admit a very much kind of nuance or or sophistication. Um, and that, I suppose, is, it, you know, is is connected to some of the 
limitations of allegory, that it is simplification, that it is a kind of, you know, it's about distilling something to a, a clear image. I mean, it, in the modern world, the, the form that allegory survives in the most these days is the cartoon, you know, kind of political cartoons where, you know, even sometimes things are labeled, you know, you know, an image will be labeled with a given meaning. And that meaning is not really subject to interpretation. There's not much nuance there. And in terms of people, I mean, for example, you, you know, Britain used to be represented by John Bull. John Bull has a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of uh, attitude, which is not necessarily representative of all British people, but is kind of held to represent that culture. Um, so obviously, when you have something like that, it is flattening the nuance. It's flattening the kind of reality of of complex societies or of, of complex human nature or whatever it is. But I think if, if Voyager fails a little bit in this regard in its use of, of allegory as a way of revealing cultural character traits in, in that episode, I feel like it redeems itself a little bit in Scorpion <laughs> uh-huh. because, because there the allegory, the allegory that, that Chakotay gives about, mm. about trust is, a, is a, I would say, is something more approaching a universal moral principle. Um, you know, people will be true to their to their character, and that 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 is probably true of people transculturally. So, I, I think the danger of misreading that story is much lower than misreading the fables that Neelix is reading about. Well, although I mean, it's interesting. I think there are, there are various interesting parallels between those two stories. I mean, on one level, the story of Dragon's Teeth is the Scorpion story again. You, you know, basically, all the information is telling you don't trust these people; they'll screw you over you know, and then you trust them and they yeah, yeah. you over. You, you know, or they, they kind of live up to the, you know, exactly what Chakoto is saying about the Borg. You know, don't trust the Borg, they'll screw you over. It's kind of, you, you know, they're, they're not to be trusted. And I think, again, there's kind of, you know, it's Chicote, interestingly, in both episodes, who brings up this kind of fable. I mean, in Dragon's Teeth, he's the one who, who, who gives us the title of the episode, this Greek myth about the Dragon's Teeth that, that spring up uh, into warriors. Don't you know that Native Americans are more clued into allegory in general? Well, of course, of course, they would be. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 don't forget that Chakotay is an anthropologist, so you know he knows all this. But right. but it, but it, it's interesting. It does tie into, even though that's not a Native American story, and the Scorpion story is not a Native American story. It's kind of because he has this kind of connection to his own culture. We sort of accept this kind of ancient cultural wisdom coming from him somehow. In talking about dragon teeth, you have to make a distinction between. The, the the fables that Neelix is reading about, those I would call those like micro-allegories inside the episode, right? Learning mm-hmm. about the Vaudoir through allegory, through their fables, right? Um, versus uh, Dragon's Teeth as an example of, a, of, a, of an allegory that's more similar to what you see in, in Scorpion, right? The, indivi- the individual tales that Neelix is reading about isn't, aren't necessarily analogous to Chakotay's um, fable in, in Scorpion. But you can think of the way in which Captain Janeway has to approach the Vaudoir as a type of allegory that's analogous to what I think what Chakotay is doing in Scorpion. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, I think there's a kind of structural similarity between those yeah. two stories and the fact that it's Chakotay who always brings it up, whether it's, <laughs> it is. Why know, is that? Greece or that's the kind of counsel that he provides to Janeway is this kind of earthy sort of, you know, native cultural the folk folklore Folksy native advisor, culture. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and his and his folklore, of course, turns out to be reliable in a way that Neelix is isn't because Neelix is not really steeped in Talaxian folklore or, or whatever this folklore is about the Vardois. He's he's kind of vaguely remembering something he heard once, you know, many years ago. Whereas Chakotay kind of we are given to believe knows his stuff 
knows his stuff. You know, he knows he knows about the dragon's teeth uh, story, and he knows about the scorpion. The interesting thing is, though, if you look into this fable of the scorpion, which appears to be a kind of Aesop-style fable, the scorpion is a post-atomic fable. It doesn't come into existence until after the Second World War. It doesn't come into existence until the mid-1950s, as far as people can tell. And it becomes this very popular fable, but it's kind of a fake fable. And it, it gets referenced in various uh, movies and books and so on since that point. Um, and the scorpion becomes this kind of emblem, in a sense, of this kind of animal that is untrustworthy. And you, and you can tell by looking at it, it's, it's this idea that it fits its appearance. You know, it, it looks untrustworthy. I mean, in the same way as the Kardashians kind of look reptilian, we don't trust them. In the same way as the Vardois, they literally look slightly like lizards, and they're being described as like dragons. We have all these kind of, you know, when you talk about preconceptions, all these kind of visual preconceptions about um, the animal based on, on how it looks. But the other interesting thing about the scorpion is that, the, so the scorpion itself doesn't figure in the fables until these kind of 1950s fake fables. But there are Aesop fables that are similar. So the, the similar story is about, it's, it's about the mouse and the toad. And it was one of Aesop's stories. It was also one of the ones that was popularized in the medieval period by a poet called Robert Henryson, who translated or adapted various of Aesop's fables. And one of the most popular was his poem, The Paddock and the Mouse, which was about uh, a toad, a paddock, and, and a mouse who wants to cross the river. Um, and one of the interesting things about that fable is that there's this whole discussion between the toad and the mouse about whether to whether to judge someone based on their appearance. You know, is it right to to judge the toad because he's this sort of ugly toad that he's not going to be trustworthy and so on? Um, and the toad is saying, you know, no, 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 I, you, you know, all, all this sort of thing. Don't worry, I'll, I'll um, you, you know, I'll, you can trust me. I'll, I'll help you out, etc. And, the, and the, the mouse is kind of in two minds and then in the end decides to trust him and Toad tries to kill him. And then, um, it, interestingly, in the end of that version of the story, both of them get swept away by a kite, uh, like, you know, a bird, a bird of prey who eats them both and disembowels them. <laughs> it has a rather gory... See, I, thought, I thought you were going to say something like, you know, the Toad turns into a handsome prince. That's our modern version. No, of that, that, right? would nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be a nice version. The, the idea of a fake fable is interesting to me because it sounds very similar to what we see back in, I would say, the later days of early Christianity when people mm. would write what I would call fake gospels or new gospels in the style of older gospels or in the name of, you know, one of the historical apostles, right. Um, to give their own views credibility. So it's interesting the idea that you can, you know, basically devise a new fable, a new story that is structurally similar to what came before. And it sounds fully authentic. I, I didn't know that. I would have guessed that was one of Aesop's fables, right. It sounds exactly. so plausible, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, it, but you, you've described it as a fake fable. I find that fascinating. It is. It is. I always assumed it was one. Of, I mean, I only learned this today that it was a fake fable, and I was quite astonished by that. But I do think it's interesting that it kind of comes from this sort of post-atomic era. This idea of you know the inherent evil in this creature, the kind of something in that it, it sort of ties into that idea for me. I mean, the other thing that's interesting, though, going back to say the medieval version of the fable with the, with the mouth and the toad, is that there are several levels at which it can be interpreted so uh, quite aside from the fact that it has this slightly different ending where they they both get eaten by the by the hawk you know the poet then at the end of the fable he provides his own kind of gloss on the story he provides called the moralitas i think where he basically provides the moral and there's there's the, the moral on the level of allegory which is that um 
you know what every figure represents so the the you know the the water that they're going to drown in is the the concerns of the world and the you ever read dante's la vita nuova no but i was going to ask you actually about the the divine comedy well that, that's it, interesting in the in la vita nuova which is his book mm. of poetry for beatrice um he follows every poem with a little explanation of what represents what inside the poem well exactly and that idea that i suppose you're going to provide the provide the explanation for the reader so that they don't have to work it out for themselves. Can you imagine so, them doing so, this so in Star Trek? Get... Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you imagine <laughs> what that would be your last <laughs> battlefield where at the end of every episode you had Gene Roddenberry kind of like maybe Rod Serling standing there going, okay, the half black, half white aliens represent white people and black people here in the real world. That probably would not have got by the census. <laughs> no, you're right. It wouldn't, although, although weirdly, in, in Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, the final scene of that episode is, is Uhura and Spock and Kirk all chatting on the bridge, and they, they come very close to they do that, kind doing of. that. It's yeah. a real kind of moralizing, sort of sermonizing scene where they, they kind of, you know, discuss the issues after the plot has kind of essentially finished. Um, just Robert Henderson, so when he, his kind of, his uh, moral summary, in a sense, the moralitas of the story of the, of the mouse and the toad. Um, he says, first of all, that there, there's this kind of allegorical representation where uh, the mouse represents the human soul. Uh, it's bound to the body in the same way as, the, as the, the mouse is bound to the ugly toad, which is this kind of ugly, you know, physical body. And the mouse is this kind of beautiful creature. The river is the world with the waves of tribulation. And then the bird of prey is death, which always you know, comes at the end and carries you off and, and brings an end to it all. So there's the kind of allegorical interpretation but then he gives this other interpretation, which is more straightforward in a sense, which is a kind of moral interpretation. He says, my brother, if thou will take advertence, advice, I guess, warning, by this fable, thou may perceive and see it passes far all kind of pestilence and wicked mind with word is fair and sly. Beware, therefore, with whom thou followest thee. In other words, be, you know, be wary of who you're going to who you're going to follow, who you're going to trust. Um, kind of basically what Chakotay is saying is, is the moral of the story is don't trust the, the, the dubious, you know, or, or, or in the dragon's teeth example, don't trust the, whatever they're called, the demon with the golden voice, uh, be, you know, be suspicious of them, um, and that they can have fair words, but be lying, essentially. Um, and that's the moral of the story as we would take it. I'm fascinated by this idea of a moralitaf, and I have to admit, I've never heard that word until today because I don't study these things. But, um, it's an interesting question whether uh, fables and allegories speak for themselves or whether they need a follow-up to explain the message. And I, that's more of a question of human nature. Do we as humans need someone to explain the message to us or can, you know, if a, can a cleverly crafted allegory, you know, be revealing on its own? I kind of feel like maybe you've been listening to Metatrex, my podcast for a while. I feel like sometimes yeah. my final thoughts in Metatrex are moralitafs. I didn't realize it until today. <laughs> That's what you should call them. You should have a yeah, have a little section. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, and, and you mean, can also is it is it sermonizing? Because the way you're describing it is that fail, fables are not morally neutral, right? They're not mm -hmm. open to radical interpretation. There's a message that the author of the fable wants you to take away, and Star Trek is definitely like that. I don't think Star Trek is morally neutral at all. And seeing these allegorical morality plays. 
the creators and the story writers want you to take away a particular message from that. Um, yes, there's some wiggle room. There's some open. There's some openness for interpretation to how it applies here in the real world. But the universal principles, I think, are not morally neutral. They're making a claim about the right way to think about something. So I don't think of it as a bad thing to to be able to kind of summarize. Here's what the takeaway is, you know, and create a morale taff, as you called it. It is interesting. I mean, I would say with these poems, it's kind of, it's probably the, the least entertaining part of the story. And I suppose from the point of view of, I mean, I'm thinking about like, say, Aesop's fables. You know, I used to love them as a kid. I mean, I talked earlier about reading Narnia books as a kid. And I, I, you get the message, don't you? I mean, like the tortoise and the hare, you, you know, you don't really need that explained to you. You kind of, you sort of get the point of it. But I suppose you can go into it in more detail. You can kind of tease out more uh, of the complexity of that story or, or, or drawing parallels to, to real world things maybe by, are kind of going a bit more into it. But I think it, there is obviously the pleasure of the story itself and the fact that these animal stories, I mean, you know, this, this guy, Robert Henderson, who was, who was translating these poems. I mean, I've talked a lot about medieval poetry as being quite sort of holy and quite sort of religious and quite sort of virtuous, but they are, they're funny little stories. I mean, if you, you know, if you appreciate Chaucer with the kind of bawdiness and the humor, I mean, these, if uh, I'll just read you the beginning of this story, just because it, it gives you an idea of the kind of, the tone, which is quite sort of jocular and, and silly in a sense. It, it says, and he even begins by talking about Aesop. He says, upon a time, as Aesop could report, the little mouse come till the riverside. She might not wade, her shankies were so short. She could not swim. She had no horse to ride. Of very force behoved her to bide. She had to wait. And to and fra beside that river deep, she ran. Cryand with many piteous peep, help over, help over, the silly mouse can cry. For God is life, somebody over the brim. With that, and paddock in the water by, put up a head and on the bank can climb. Well, by nature could duke and gaily swim, who could swim and, and dive in the water. With voice full rock, she said on this manner, Good morning, sir mouse, what is your errand here? So you just get a sense of the flavour of this is quite a kind of playful narrative do you know what i mean it's 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 a silly little story it's a trifle and i suppose that for the allegory to work you have to be it can't just be a dreary sermon because no one will buy that book no one will enjoy it they have to enjoy the story before and they have to kind of get the the fun out of it in the same way as with star trek we have to enjoy the kind of the fun element of the story um i mean even with the episode stigma that i mentioned you know it's quite serious story it also of course in that episode has a b plot which is quite silly and comedic and you know about Fox's wife trying to seduce Trip and so on. You, you kind of need you need the balance, I guess, is the answer. And when it doesn't work, when it's too didactic, when it becomes, you know, the kind of uh, whatever on Mission Log they always talk about the after-school special. When it becomes too kind of obvious and on the nose, you sort of lose the reader's interest in a way. I was thinking, what's so appealing about these animal fables? These kind of simplistic, engaging stories. I mean, that was a great mm. performative reading there, by the way. <laughs> but, oh, thank you. So I'm looking for kind of <laughs> like the, been done in a Scottish accent, I think. I'm looking for the hidden assumptions <laughs> that make those yeah. fables so appealing to us. And coming to this from a, a philosophy standpoint, it sounds to me like the hidden assumption behind these nat- these uh, animal based fables is some sort of naturalism. Like, look at the way it works in the natural world with these animals that we see around us, and so we're part of the natural world. And so morality is kind of a natural thing. It's something that's built into the world around us. And that's kind of the argument that's going on. If it's good enough for the animals, it's good enough for us because morality is kind of built into the natural world in some way. Is that what makes those stories so appealing? The idea that they're naturalistic in some way? 
I think, I mean, I think they appeal, they probably appeal to children because children like animals. <laughs> There's a kind of a I like cute animals there. too, don't get but, me wrong. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it sounds deeper than animals. that though. So, you know, yeah. But I think there's also, I mean, from a, a medieval perspective, of course, you know, there's a kind of creationist element to this, that the natural world is an expression of God's design. It's, you know, everything is there for a reason. Everything is representing something. And actually one of the reasons that this idea of allegory works in a kind of religious level is that in, in many ways, God is seen as this kind of author of a story which happens to be real, um, in a sense. And, and in some ways, that ties into the episode Dharmak and the idea of these events that kind of replay or that represent other events. You know, that something that has, it may be historically real, but it nonetheless can be, uh, you know, preordained or, or providentially arranged, in a sense, by God. And therefore, it has symbolic significance, as well as, you know, in, in the way that we would think of I suppose we think of reality as messy and conflicted and confusing and complex and art and literature as more symbolic or kind of, we expect different things from a real world story and a a fiction. You know, we expect a fiction to mean something. We expect it to be structured in a certain way. Whereas for the medieval mindset, there maybe wasn't that distinction in the same way. You, You know, reality was being ordered by uh, a, a greater power that that meant that everything and and I'm not you know obviously many people believe these things today but I mean I think in that era this was a pervasive kind of you you had an episode recently about meta narratives this was kind of part of their meta narrative in a sense of what life and and existence was this is something I feel like we've lost this connotation a little bit this is something to the idea of authorship as as creatorship right when you when you're creating you're also adjudicating when you're writing something writing a fable writing a story you are basically taking your vision about what the world should be or the antithesis of that if you're being ironic and writing that into the thing you're creating you're the author and you can by analogy you know if you think of God as a creator in, in the medieval mindset, God is kind of the supreme author of us as a story, taking his own vision about what's right and what's wrong and how reality should be and writing that into the natural world, bringing it to fruition in some way. But I think we forget that there's a kind of a, we, we call ourselves creators as creative people, but that is taken a bit more literally, I think, in, in the medieval mindset than it is for us today. And it's interesting you know, to me, say the Aesop fables, the, I mean, I don't think anyone much reads Henderson's medieval version of them, but, but, you know, in various translations and adaptations into modern language and so on, people, you know, children grow up reading those stories today. I mean, interestingly, I think it does vary with the times because, you know, the Pilgrim's Progress, which is a, a, you know, weighty allegorical tome, I haven't read it. I, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of, it's, it's the sort of thing that would put a lot of people off because it's seen as very kind of virtuous and very sort of, worthy sort of religious allegory but in its day was a massive bestseller you know that was flying off the shelves effectively you know in in that period a bit later um you you know pilgrim's progress in some ways quite similar to Piers plowman which i talked about which again is quite it's a sort of religious the dream allegory so the, the character keeps dreaming these different scenarios and kind of and encountering all these personified characters so he you know, he encounters truth and justice and mercy, and they all have debates about various things. Um, and I think it's interesting. We today we accept fable maybe more easily than that kind of personification allegory. Something like the Fairy Queen, Spencer's Fairy Queen, you know, might have been popular in its day, but people struggle to to get through a book like that now because it's all it's constantly you know meeting these characters who aren't characters. I mean, um, and we do have an expectation, particularly if we're reading a large book 
that it you know we've grown up reading novels we expect a character to be a character i part of my research today for this podcast was i was looking at uh, an old book of mine called um medieval writers and their work and there's quite an interesting chapter in that about allegory and, and the ways that uh it's a challenge for modern readers um who are kind of steeped in ideas about the novel i'm just going to read this couple of sentences because i think it, it, it gives a good encapsulation of that it says a figure bearing a name such as david copperfield obviously you know relating to a 19th century novel that we're familiar with um and that kind of mode that we're familiar with purports to represent an individual human being but a figure labeled patience represents one of the simpler constituents into which human nature can be analyzed it's therefore absurd to expect the personification itself to exhibit complexities of character characters have patience but patience does not have a character and well, I that's, that's, that's basically of, saying that there's something universal that's not changing. There's something constant about the idea of patience and it can be displayed by different characters that have other traits and, and other complexity. But the idea of patience itself is something approaching a universal concept or universal idea, if not an ideal. And we can accept, yes, and we can accept representations of that, but we expect maybe a degree of characterization as well. We, we, we react instinctively against that kind of personification. So interestingly, there is at least one example of personification in Star Trek, which is in the Voyager episode, The Thor, where we meet a character who is fear. And he is quite literally, I mean, on one level, he's been created by the, the fears of these various people who've been linked in a certain way. We, arguably, we see it as well in The Next Generation with Armus you know skin of evil he's kind of he's absorbed the evil but fear is very much um is a character he he is a kind of you know allegorical personification of fear and one thing i think is quite interesting about the episode is that janeway has this real kind of challenge of working out how, how do i deal with this problem in the real world of this essentially malign computer program and the solution is to think uh in a sort of more philosophical sense about you know what is fear What's the role of fear in my life? What does fear, what does, she keeps asking, what does fear want? What does fear need? You know, all these kind of um, questions. So she approaches it. She takes it very seriously that this is fear and sees that as the way to solve the problem. You know, it occurs to me that another example of this uh, personification approach to, to allegory occurs in the Voyager episode Muse when mm. Bellana is forced to write uh, plays <laughs> essentially yeah. based on her log entries, based on her tales of, of Voyager. Again, it's a little, it's a little heavy handed. It's a little ham fisted, right? You know, like, Oh, Voyager is an allegory and we're going to turn it into a play <laughs> in some sort of ancient mm-hmm. Greek sense. But um, I guess the, the, my, my fundamental question is still like what makes certain allegories sticky? Like every generation has their own stories, their own challenges. Um, and I think as new stories arise, some stories aren't understood by people from previous generations. Like um, I'm thinking of uh, a, a franchise that came out within the last few years, something like the hunger games, right? That's something young people really liked. I happen to particularly really find it engaging and interesting, but I heard terrible things said about it from people past a certain age, right? They just didn't mm-hmm. get how, you know, what it, what the takeaway was and how it was relevant to what was going on in the world around them. It didn't translate. So some of these stories seem to translate in some sort of universal uh, transgenerational sense like what it can't just be that they reveal certain universal principles because all allegories seem to do that right so what are the stories that persist transgenerationally and what distinguishes those from the the stories that come and go in the course of ordinary generational progression but but don't have that very broad appeal 
I guess we have certain sort of schematic uh, archetypal stories that maybe we, we you, you know, people famously say, you know, there's only seven different stories or whatever. And, you know, we hear, say, in cinema, we hear a lot about the hero's journey, the kind of, you know, Star Wars being the example of this story. And there are certain kind of beats to it and certain events that have to happen at certain times, certain obstacles. Do you know what I mean? It's all quite schematic. And we, we recognize, a, or say a romantic comedy, we, we recognize the structure of that. And, and a lot of romantic comedies, you, you know, it's, it's a formula, but there is, I mean, even beyond the level of like, they're going to get married at the end or whatever. You know, say in a Shakespearean romantic comedy, you know it's a romantic comedy because uh, there's a wedding in the final scene and, and no one dies. You, you, you know, in a kind of modern rom-com, there's often, um, the structure is even more specific than that. I mean, typically the couple will get together about sort of two thirds of the way through, then they'll break up for some spurious reason and then they'll get back together again in the final, you, you know, few minutes or whatever. So there's a kind of, there's a, a familiarity that we kind of recognize. But I think on the level of, that's not so much allegory. That's more maybe the, well, the structure. And I think the thing with the with the allegories is, I suppose, the question is what you know. When does something translate, or when do we lose the meaning of it? You, you know, and what is it connecting to? And are we? Where does the meaning get lost? Because if the meaning is not overt, if the meaning is to some degree hidden, uh, it is possible then to, if you don't have the knowledge, uh, to to not pick up on it. If you don't know anything about the end of the Cold War, it, it's, I'm sure, possible to watch uh, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and not see all the parallels between what was going on at the time they were making that film, not see the way that that film plays out some of those elements. And, and you know, some of the satisfaction of watching that film is kind of picking up on those elements. It's a kind of element, almost of an in-joke there, of kind of recognising how, how things have been translated. I remember going to a lecture once at university where someone was talking about painting and I, I don't remember any of the details of this, but it, what, what struck me was just the levels and particularly with, you, you know, art history, the levels of kind of coded meaning that are just not accessible to the average modern viewer in a sense. And what they were talking about in this painting was, you know, not only all the different things represented in the painting that you know, that visually echoed other paintings or that echoed other things or that, you know, that represented something else allegorically, but also that in order to understand the painting, you had to understand where in the person's house who'd commissioned it, it was hung, what was on the painting on the opposite wall, what was on the painting down the corridor. Do you know what I mean? What you could see out the window, all of these things basically tapped into the meaning of this painting and that to kind of, you know, whoever it was that commissioned the painting saw it with all of that contact context in place but for us to piece together that context becomes increasingly difficult and as time goes on you, you know so even in, in a Shakespeare play the, the contemporary references you have to read the footnotes to understand what they're referring to at the time it was you know it made perfect sense like stand-up comedy it kind of it refers to things that we understand I mean I was quite struck I know that you're quite interested in Dante um, you know I've read the inferno of dante but i don't really understand that on an i i know that, that there's sort of two levels of or at least two levels of understanding that you can understand it as this story uh on a kind of literal level which i suppose is how i read it there's also a, an allegorical level but it requires a degree of kind of of translation that is yeah. not to me anyway is not obvious i understand it largely on i understand the spiritual level of it mainly i politically right. i don't understand it on a political level because so much of the political commentary going on inside the inferno and, and the divine comedy is so tied to the particular politics of the day that I just, you know, I have to dive into the footnotes. I'm not going to spend the time to get to understand the mindset that much. So I understand mm-hmm. kind of this universal spiritual context of it. 
But to, to bring it back to, to Star Trek a little bit, I feel like in the 1970s, Star Trek was on the cusp of being something that was generationally particular, right? Like it was this mm-hmm. blip of the 1960s. You know, the Enterprise was on a five-year mission. Yes, they did some commentary on race relations in a very 1960s way. And they did some commentary on the Cold War in a very 1960s way. And then coming out of the 70s into the movie franchise and and into the 80s with Star Trek The Next Generation, all of a sudden the mindset shifted. It wasn't a five-year mission. It was an ongoing, continuous mission. <laughs> and, and, that, and I think that provides a little bit of commentary on Star Trek's role. And it, of course, yes, it was obviously a business too, of course, right? You know, there's some, uh, if you're going to spend the time and money to make a TV show, you want it to be an ongoing mission. So you keep, <laughs> keep getting continual revenue. But, but I think the shift from a five-year mission to an ongoing human mission in a broader, more universal sense was a shift that you can see from how the original series thought of, thought of exploration versus how the next generation thought of the exploration of the human condition. And retroactively looking back at the original series, you can find these universal principles that I think were not uh, always apparent because because of the the historical situatedness of the, of the original series in the 1960s right you can you can look at the original series and go god what a what a 1960s show that is look at the set design look at the issues they're commenting on they're not relevant anymore but when you reconceive of Star Trek as a whole as a, a commentary on the ongoing human condition, when you look back at the original series, you go, oh my God, look at all this really brilliant universal stuff that was there all along that we didn't necessarily focus on because we were so situated in the 1960s at the time. Mm. I think that's where the kind of ethos of the show comes in. And that's, you know, and people can identify if they think, you know, something that is or isn't Star Trek in a sense. You know, people watch the jj verse movies and say that's not star trek or they'll watch i mean i remember there was an interesting discussion um in relation to season three of enterprise the episode where uh damage where they leave the um you know where archer and his crew basically uh go and steal this uh technology because they need it um and there was a discussion i think it was when they were doing when we were doing from there to here and um about whether that felt like Star Trek or not, basically. What's the what's the kind of boundary and what's the kind of, um, you, you know, and you can argue about individual episodes. Did they go too far in this direction or did it, you, you know, was the moral uh, the wrong moral in a sense? And, and that sometimes has happened, I think, that sometimes the, the message of an episode can be slightly ambiguous or can be slightly dubious oh. in some ways. But But at the same time, that doesn't take away from the fact that we do have a sense of what sort of overall Star Trek represents and what overall the kind of, you know, morals and messages and the kind of worldview of it is. That, that's an interesting question because I, insofar as what has allowed, Star, I think what has allowed Star Trek to become something transgenerational versus something his, mm-hmm. historically situated in the 60s or even in the 90s now, we're you know, 20 years after the fact now, um, you know, which universal things are being displayed? I think some people think that Star Trek should display our universal ideals in the characters, in the stories, and be very proactive about illustrating what the end result of this, this cultural evolution should be. Another way of looking at that is to, is to say that Star Trek illustrates not universal ideals, but universal human struggles. There will always be universal human struggles. You know, there will always be a situation where someone doesn't have enough to eat and they have to decide, do I go out and steal from other people because I don't have enough to eat? You know, that is going to be an ongoing kind of struggle of the human condition in the, for the foreseeable future, as far as we understand it economically, right? So that kind of story, Captain Archer decides to steal something from another ship. 
Well, that doesn't illustrate our, our highest ideals, but it does illustrate the universal uh, features of human struggles, I think. Well, it's been fun talking about allegory uh, in Star Trek. But Zachary, before you go, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find you on the internet and elsewhere on the Trek FM network? Well, you can find me elsewhere on Trek.fm as co-host of Metatrek's Trek FM show on Star Trek and philosophy, along with my co-host over there, Mike Morrison. You can always find me in the Babel Conference, Trek FM's listeners-only discussion group, if you'd like to talk about philosophy or allegory or anything else having to do with Star Trek with me over there. And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is just my name, at Zachary Fruling. That's Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, Fruling, F-R-U-H-L-I-N-G. I feel like maybe if we're saying that all Star Trek is fable, we should really change the name to the Fable Conference. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> anyway. I don't think that'll stick. You know, we can, we can lobby with Chris. <laughs> we give it a go, see what happens. Can we change yeah. it to the Fable <laughs> No. Well, talking about the wild and fantastic and fabulous world of allegory uh, isn't all we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen at some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. By getting people like Braga to come on board and work on this show, what they're going to be doing is deconstructing that, that thing that they did for all those years on Star Trek. Earl Grey. Is there anything else we need to add, or do we think that's the... Are we going to cure Riker? Or <laughs> oh, shoot, I forgot about Riker. Yeah, sure, fine, we'll keep him around. Yeah, we've cured Riker. And then uh, for, for me, this would, yeah, or, or not. <laughs> Meta Trex. Troy's quarters, Data's quarters. They're very Spartan. They're very Spartan. In fact, Data's girlfriend even says they're Spartan. Yes, yes. And so what does she do? She brings him stuff. A trinket to fill it up. To, to fill it up. <laughs> Warp 5. And this reminds me so much of the cage. So much of the cage. See, I think of, uh, yeah, you think of the cage too, but I also think of, uh, of uh, what's his name? B- Baylock in the Corbomite maneuver. Yes, right? yes. Offering him the drink. Tranya. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. 
the best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. Blend it all right.